Welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and uh, this is a special edition of Deep in Scripture. Uh, the staff and I, as well as uh, Catholics all around the world, uh, mourn the passing of Father Benedict Grishel. He was a great friend, of a uh, personal friend and a friend of the staff and, the, and uh, in our work here at the Coming Home Network. He was always a great encourager, and we miss him. And I thought for this program, uh, since actually this week we'll be involved with uh, the funeral, uh, that I would take a special episode from a talk that he gave at the first of the Coming Home Network Deep in History conferences back in 2003. He gave a talk on authentic and inauthentic renewal. It isn't exactly a scripture study, but in the talk he'll deal with scripture as well as dealing with authentic renewal in the church as well as in our own lives. So this is just snippets from that talk, and I hope you enjoy this as an encouragement to your life. What I want to talk to you tonight about is reform. Because the church constantly needs reform. And if you have come into the Catholic Church in the United States at the end of the 20th century, you have come into a church that desperately needs reform. American society, European society, is moving toward dissolution. I'll prove it to you. Go to the hospital and what do you get? Sick. You get a staph infection. The doctor is trying to get you out fast enough that you won't get a staph infection in the hospital. Go to court. You don't get justice. My gracious goodness, one of the most bizarre illusions of American people is that you get justice in court. You win or lose a prize by a game you play, and it's based on the cleverness of your lawyers. That's what is decided in court. And uh, we have terrible cases. I work with the poor. 200 poor men have been released from the death house or from life imprisonment by the DNA studies, which prove without a doubt that they were not the culprit. And they had life sentences or death sentences because they never had any legal decent representation. Uh, no, no justice. And there are people who should have been found guilty because they had expensive lawyers were not. One man was not found guilty of murder, but he was found guilty of having killed his wife and deprived her of human rights. And he was found guilty of that because he had millions of dollars to spend on defense. It's a game. You read the newspaper to get the truth or to get some objective presentation of the facts. A complete, absolute waste of time. Now, on top of that, you uh, go to school, to the university, to become ignorant. <laughs> now, not the universities that are being featured here because they're, I'll tell you why, because they have a broad education. But you can go to a university and get an ever narrower view of something. It may be a science, it may be some aspect of literature or history, but you'll never be an educated person. We do not educate people. And you can go to church and not hear the truth. And you can go to the Catholic church and not hear the truth. 
Believe me. Be ready. And uh, th this, this is a sign of a dying society. I happen to love St. Augustine. I wrote a book on St. Augustine's writings. I've read him practically every day of my life since I'm 16 years old. I know him backwards and forwards. And he lived in a time like our own. What would you think if I tell you about an event where the leading city of the world is economic center, its power, suddenly had an incredible attack where sizable parts of the city were destroyed and its citizens put into chaos. What city? Rome or New York? Same thing. In 411, the great city of Rome was sacked by the barbarian king Alaric. It was impossible. Rome had ruled the world for 400 years. More than that, it couldn't happen. And the barbarians, the ancestors of most of the people in this room, sacked the city of Rome. Very few of you are not descended from the barbarians. If you are Polish, Slavic, French, German, Northern Italian, Northern Spanish, uh, if you are Irish, English, Scotch, or Welsh, or if you are from the lower part of Northern Europe, you are descended from those barbarians. The Huns, the Goths, they made Catholic Europe. The Benedictine monks particularly converted them. They were a new civilization. And they were called barbarians simply because they had beards. They were in a lot better shape than the Romans. According to Lot, Ferdinand Lot, in the history, a book called The End of the Roman Empire and the Beginning of the Dark Ages, he says the barbarians never exceeded 20% of the population of the empire. They couldn't read or write. They had inferior medical, uh, military equipment. They were, had racked by illness and disease. And the Roman Empire fell into their hands like a piece of rotten fruit. And they became Christians in a couple of generations. Now, I think we live in such times. And I think desperately, Christianity needs reform each of its denominations in their own way, and the Catholic Church in the way that it must go. And our society desperately needs reform. Mother Teresa said to me many times, no nation can survive which kills its own children. Just look at the media in this country. And pathetically, the clergy say nothing. The religious people say nothing. The religious laity say nothing. Reform is an interesting thing. You have to make definitions. Nicholas Lennon, Marx, uh, Engels, they wanted to reform Europe, European civilization, but they wanted to reform it by destroying it and building something new. And Lenin said before his death, I look back at my life and I see an ocean of blood. 
I could have saved Russia if I had 10 men like Francis of Assisi. Apparently, he didn't think he had saved Russia. In an extremely interesting article, Cardinal Dulles, with whom I had lunch yesterday in Washington, Dr. Hahn and I came from the same thing, in an article called True and False Reform. This is in um, First Things for September of this year. In order to make a sound evaluation of reform movements, it will, be it will be helpful to unpack the concept of reform. To reform is to give new and better form to a pre-existing reality while preserving its essentials. Unlike innovation, reform implies organic continuity. It does not add something foreign or extrinsic. Unlike revolution or transformation, reform respects and retains the substance that was previously there. Unlike development, it implies that something has gone wrong and needs to be corrected. The point of departure for reform is always the idea or inst intuition that it is affirmed but considered to have been imperfectly or defectively realized. Reform can be of different kinds. It can restore, and you have to be careful that it isn't too traditional, or it can be progressive, and it can lead at our times into modernism, jettisoning over the very nature of the church. Unfortunately, with all their sincerity, and I personally never, ever question the sincerity of the Protestant reformers, particularly Luther and Calvin. I never question that. Unfortunately, the reform was not a reform. They meant it to be. The Baptists did not. The Baptists intended to start something new, to go back to the Church of the New Testament, to replicate it according to what they thought it was, and they created a figment of their imagination. As Dr. Howell pointed out, they knew nothing about what the development of the words of the Eucharist and St. Paul's words of the Eucharist in 1 Corinthians 11, what these words meant to the people who took the place of the apostles. The Baptists knew nothing. The others claimed to have been bringing that on, but they did not. But I do not question their sincerity. They were devout men, and they lived in a terrible time. The Catholic Church was in atrocious condition. And I'll tell you why. It's not hard to figure out. The great Middle Ages, the ages of faith, began to decline at the end of the 13th century. In 1350, an event took place which we do not have an adequate appreciation of. An event took place which was the equivalent of an atomic war, and that was the Black Death. In wave after wave, the Black Death, in the course of 10 years, took one half the population of Europe from Turkey to Iceland. It took away uh, one half of the people, uh, two-thirds of the clergy, and three-fourths of the religious, because the religious were responsible to care for the dying and the sick. The Franciscan province of Paris, which numbered well over a 1,000 men, founded by St. Bonaventure, was wiped out to the last man. 
It was an incredible time. Also, at that time, into European history, came the, a devastatingly mistaken idea, the idea between Roe versus Wade. Not the idea of abortion, but the idea that vitiates the entire notion of the Supreme Court in the United States Constitution. The dry rot in the Constitution and foundations of the United States is the Supreme Court. And I'll explain this in a minute. A Franciscan theologian by the name of William of Ockham attempted to make a bridge between science and theology. He had the mistaken notion, not entirely unrelated to what Dr. Howell was saying about Galileo, that somehow or other theology and science had to be wedded together. They cannot be. Science can give reasons for belief. Theology, especially moral theology, can control some of the bizarre applications of science, like cloning. But science has nothing to do with the spiritual or the transcendent. Science is ultimately the orderly measurement of the interaction of physical substances and qualities on each other. That's what science is. Science is materialistic. It has to be. And he should never have made, tried to make a bridge. Now listen to this, because this is terribly important, and it tells you something about why we need a reform in the United States. The Greeks, the Romans, the Jews, all agreed, and many of the Oriental religions, that there were certain qualities of being. And the, some of the Greeks, like Plato, some of the Romans, like Aurelius, all of the Jews and the fathers of the church said that these qualities were part of the very essence of God. Unity, truth, goodness, and beauty. Nobody ever said this more clearly than St. Augustine. St. Thomas never denied it. Being, and ultimately being in its absolute form, is one, true, good, and beautiful. There is a certain rightness to things that can never be altered. Science has no idea like this at all. And William of Ockham, now listen to this one. This is the mistake behind the Reformation. The great mistake behind the Reformation is not the misunderstanding of the authority of the church. It's more elemental than even that. And you'll see it in a minute. Ockham said that God had to decide what was right or wrong. That he had to decide that honesty was good and that stealing was wrong. And Ockham said God would never make a mistake because of his divine wisdom. So he ended up in the same place. But you got there the wrong way. So he presented into philosophy and the thinking of human beings the idea of arbitrariness. God could decide that this or that was wrong. And it came to an incredible, unthinkable error. And, uh, uh, and the Lutherans and the Calvinists 
got themselves out of this era long ago, politely, that God could decide before a human being was created, apart from anything that they did, that they were going to heaven or hell. That's based on William of Ockham. God has to decide. It violates the very notion of goodness. Now Luther bought it lock, stock, and barrel. Luther taught that before you were conceived, it was determined you were going to heaven or hell, that faith was an, a sign, a symptom, that you were going to heaven, but it didn't get you there. That there wasn't anything you could do. That if you were going to hell, you were going. And if you were going to heaven, you were going. But completely arbitrary. And Calvin did something very fascinating. He took a step back toward Catholicism. And although Calvinism is less, is less liturgical and sacramental than Catholicism, in terms of spirituality, it is closer to Catholicism than Lutheranism. There's a Protestant theologian, Morimoto, a Japanese theologian from Princeton, who has written a book called The Catholicism of Jonathan Edwards. He's a great Calvinist divine. I don't think Jonathan Edwards ever saw a Catholic in his life. But this is how they got halfway back. Calvin taught, if you were going to hell, that's it, goodbye. But if you were going to heaven, you could lose it. You could drop the ball. You could be lost. And that's why Calvinism has always had a much stronger emphasis on spirituality. Now, as I said, modern Calvinists and Lutherans don't adopt these doctrines in, in the sharp and frightening way that they were held. And it was a dark time. Did any of you ever see The Seventh Seal, the film by Ingmar Bergman, which presents that dark time of the Black Death of the Hundred Years' War? A hundred years of war ripping Europe to pieces. The English land-grabbing France. And the war ended in less than a year by a mystic girl operating on a private revelation, Joan of Arc. In one year, by raising the siege of Orléans, Joan entered, ended the Hundred Years' War. Well, how do you get priests in such a thing? Where do you get bishops? Well, the bishops were largely appointed by the kings. Right up until 1918, the Habsburgs appointed the bishops in, in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. This is why the church is resisting the communist plan to appoint the bishops of the Catholic Church in China. It's not a new idea. The emperors, the kings, the king of Spain, the Austro-Hungarian emperor, they were called apostolic kings, apostolic emperors, which meant that they appointed the bishops or they nominated them to the pope. It was a terrible idea. Where did you get priests? There were no seminaries yet. And in villages and towns, the lord of the manor would pick out some peasant boy that seemed pretty bright and tell the old priest, teach him some Latin, teach him how to do the sacraments. The, the idea of celibacy had been there since 371, the Council of Elvira in the West. But under such circumstances, how do you take a village boy 
who maybe could be a schoolmaster, make him a priest. He may not have the grace of vocation of being celibate. Uh, that the fact that many priests were married should not be a matter of surprise. Many of them could hardly read. This is in the Dark Ages, and then in the Second Dark Ages, in the 14th and the beginning of the 15th century. Now, voices for reform were heard in the church, and they were immensely powerful. A 23-year-old girl, known as a charismatic preacher, organizer of things, a genius. She wrote two pope's letters who were living in Avignon under the control of the French kings. Told him to get back to Rome. In very, very frightening respect. Sure, her letters began with the words, dear Christ on earth, get yourself back to Rome. Okay, and the two popes that got these letters read them and did not obey, and they promptly died. Joan, I mean, the, the girl showed up, wasn't Joan? She showed up at the papal court of Avignon. She came in and made the customary reverences to the pope and said, your holiness, you stink. And he said, young lady, you just got here from Italy. How do you know that I stink? She said, I could smell you in Italy. <laughs> and that woman is the first woman doctor of the Catholic Church, Catherine of Siena. And I want to tell you, the pope went upstairs and packed. I think he got back to Rome before Catherine got back to Siena. St. Bernardine of Siena founded a Franciscan reform. There had been many monastic reforms before, Cluny, the Cistercian reform. I don't have time to go into them. They had been great reforms, but like other movements in Christianity, like Pentecostalism, like the, in, the enlightenment of, of the, uh, the uh, awakenings of the 19th century Protestants, great moments back in the 18th century, they, those movements come and they go. A moment of reform began in the Catholic Church toward the end of the 1400s. It was the worst time in the history of the church. Alexander VI, who I would have happily sent to a taxidermist, was pope, <laughs> you know? If you're gonna burn somebody at the stake, I would have got Alexander and used a small can of Sterno, the 29 cents up. <laughs> what a bum. And in his pontificate, baptized in the same font as Columbus, was a young woman who wanted to be a cloistered nun, but her family forced her to marry a Renaissance rake. She eventually, after he died, took her, his paramour in as her servant and raised her little daughter. This woman, had a profound conversion on the occasion of confession. She was going to confession and the priest was called away. And when he came back to the confessional, he thought she had left. And he opened the confessional door on the other side and she was unconscious. She had had such a powerful conversion. And this woman, Catherine of Genoa, Madame Adorno, went home spent three or four weeks in retreat, and then emerged as a great apostle of reform. I happen to be very strong on Catherine of Genoa. Professor Hughes and I published this book of the writings of Catherine of Genoa. This book was the guiding light of the Protestant holiness movement in the United States in the 19th century. 
and it's about purgatory. Da-da. Wait till we get around to that one. Da-da. Strange but true. Now, Catherine, what she did, and her followers, they started little prayer groups. And in Italian, ora uh, is to pray, ora pro nobis. Oratorio is a prayer group. They read scripture, they prayed about it in terms of the doctrines of the church, and they sang hymns. And when the oratory spread to Rome, they got a great popular songwriter and composer of the time to write the hymns for their meetings, and his name was Giovanni Battista um, um, Palestrina. And this is where the musical form, the oratorio, comes from. Handel's Messiah, the Bach's St. Matthew Passion, they are oratorios, and they follow the outline of a prayer meeting. Scripture, verses of the Psalms, prayers, hymns. Let's take a short break. You've been listening to Father Benedict Grishel and his talk, Authentic and Inauthentic Renewal. And you're hearing this special presentation on Deep in Scripture, sponsored by the Coming Home Network International. Back just a moment. Next time on The Journey Home, Marcus's guest is the president of Campion College in Australia and former Protestant Dr. Ryan Messmore. See how his studies led him home to the true faith, the Catholic Church, on the next Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi, your host for this special edition of this program. Let's continue listening to Father Benedict Rochelle's presentation on authentic and inauthentic renewal. Now, everybody got praying. The Reformation began. Catherine of Genoa was a lay member of the Augustinian order. The Augustinian order had an order within it, as we call the Reform Augustinians. Father John Staupitz, a German, was the superior of the Reform Order, the Vicar General, under the Augustinian General. The great Cardinal Giles of Viterbo, who preached at the, um, the Fifth Council of the Lateran and begged them, begged the fathers of the council to begin the reform of the church. This is what he says. This is uh, the, the, the council, Fifth Council of the Lateran was about 1495, and it was a failure. But it wasn't a failure because there weren't people speaking about it. And he says, I see that unless this council 
or by some other means, we are given a limit on our morals unless we force our greedy desires for human things, the source of evils, to yield to the love of divine things. It is all over with Christendom, all over with religion, even all over with those very resources which our fathers acquired by their greater service of God. But which resources now have, um, are, 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 are about, we are about to lose because of neglect? For from extreme poverty, these resources became most abundant in such a way that they seem for so long a pe period now about to perish. It is, it is important to us, of no importance, how much land we own, but rather how just, how holy, how eager for divine things, so that finally after so many evils, so many hardships, so many calamities, you may hear Christ our Lord making known to Peter and to the prosperity that this council is the one and only remedy for all its evils. They didn't listen. Giles of Viterbo, who wrote that, went up into Germany to preach the reform. He was a cardinal, and one of the people he affected was Father Martin Luther. It's unfortunate that in Protestantism, there lives on the idea that the reform um, came out of the blue with Luther. In the magazine Christianity Today, there's an excellent review of the movie Martin Luther, which points out the distortions of the movie, like Luther was the first reformer. By no means. He owned much to Cardinal Viterbo of the Cardinal Giles and to St. Catherine of Genoa. So did Luther. I could go into, uh, not so did Calvin. So did many people. When Luther gave up the idea, well, he didn't at that time, when Luther challenged the church so severely, he did not intend to leave. And I think if Luther hadn't done it, somebody else would do it. The Baptists were already getting started. It was a terrible time. The one good thing about that time is that everybody who was doing anything, the Catholics, the Lutherans, the Calvinists, the Reformers, the Reformed Church, the Baptists, the Anabaptists, they all loved Jesus Christ. They all had a real devotion to him. They were all being called by the Holy Spirit to salvation, individual salvation. This in no way minimizes my belief that the Reformation was a gigantic mistake. But I will read to you Cardinal Pole, Reginald Cardinal Pole, the last Catholic Archbishop of Canterbury. His mother had already been killed by Henry VIII for the crime of having a son, a priest. Cardinal Pole's mother, Margaret Pole, was the last of the Plantagenets. She was beheaded in the Tower of London, standing up because she would not kneel for an illegitimate monarch. She was 73 years old. The axeman had to hold her by the head, hair of the head and chop her head off standing up. Don't mess with Margaret Pole. <laughs> and Cardinal Pole, her son, at the opening session of the Council of Trent in 1545, therefore, said to the bishops, what in his great love of God, the Father, and his mercifulness toward our race, Christ did, 
justice now exacts of us that we should do. Before the tribunal of God's mercy, we the shepherds, the bishops, should make ourselves responsible for all the evils now burdening the flock of Christ. The sins of all we should take upon ourselves, not out of generosity, but out of justice. Because the truth is that of these evils, we are in the great part the cause. And therefore we should implore the divine mercy through Jesus Christ. And Cardinal Pohl said, there was no word Protestant. Don't blame the others, blame us because we failed to correct false teaching, which became heresy. We failed to correct public immorality, and we failed to condemn the land grab wars of Europe, the worst of which had been committed by his own country. There were lots of Catholic reformers. In the century uh, that Luther was born, St. Ignatius Loyola was born. St. Uh, Catherine of Genoa was born. Saint uh, Teresa of Avila, Saint John of the Cross, Saint Philip Neri, many reformers. And the young fellows in Rome who joined the oratory when it got to Rome with Palestrina, they were the bishops and even the Pope who led the Council of Trent. It couldn't have been held earlier because there were not enough people that knew what they were doing to hold it. Now, I think it is an incredible gift of God that a large number, an unexpectedly large number of very fine Protestant clergy and laity studying the history of the early church as Dr. Howell so beautifully summed up for us, find themselves accepting the Catholic faith. But they come into the Catholic church in the darkest moment that it has had since Bishop Carroll was made Bishop of Baltimore in 1780. It's a strange time for the Catholic Church. To quote Dickens, it's the worst of times and it's the best of times. There is very great confusion about faith. Catholic education, as far as I'm concerned, is in shambles. The uh, the Catholic religious life. I knew I was going to be a friar when I was 13 years old. I worked in the mother house of the Dominican nuns in our town. Of the 20 most intelligent and, and capable people I ever knew in my life, 11 of them were nuns, including Mother Teresa and Mother Angelica. And look at the shambles. I don't want to speak about the Protestant churches. There are people here today who are Episcopalians. I do not rejoice about this terrible scandal in the Episcopal Church. They get treated better than the media. When these things reach into the Catholic clergy and hierarchy, we put them off the job. And we get a lot of bad publicity. In the Episcopal Church, they put them on the job and they get good publicity. It's kind of, kind of interesting. We're going in two different directions here. And we're getting different kind of publicity. But there are many, many fine Episcopalians. I met an old Episcopal bishop down in Florida with his wife, and he said to me, my wife and I are our whole church. I offer the Eucharist every day for her. I belong nowhere. I said, well, of course I could say, well, why don't you become a Catholic? <laughs> because it's not my job to give him the grace 
to com have the completeness of faith. I'll be a witness. I'll answer the questions. I might even pop the question. But only God gives the grace of faith, hope, and charity. Now, may I say this? We need the reform of the church now. There are lots of Protestants, informed Protestants, who are startled now by the early church. Down in Alabama, Mother Angelica, and an area that was about 1% Catholic, builds a huge shrine to the Blessed Sacrament. How many of you have been there? Half the place. Okay. It's the most popular tourist attraction in Alabama. The day it opened, they announced that it would have an open house. The sisters expected 1,000 people. The police said, no, you're going to get 10,000 people. They got 30,000 people. Many Protestant parishes came led by the pastor. Do you know that 40% of the people who listen to EWTN are not Catholics? Many of them are Jews. I'm sure there must be some Muslims. I mean, I figure this one out. I'm coming up the ramp in LaGuardia, and as there's a Hasidic Jewish young fellow there with the big black hat and the payas and the whole, the whole works, and kind of a dumb looking kid, and he looks at me and says, I watch you on television. <laughs> and I said, well, you better not tell the Rebbe, or we're both gonna be in trouble. Say, so, okay. He watches EWTN. Does Mother Angelica get support from the mainstream of the church? Do they ever give her a dollar? Not a dollar. Reform. Reform. And reform works. We started our little community 16 years ago. Not that I wanted to reform the church. I was heartbroken to leave my community. I was a Capuchin 37 years. I was an altar boy for the blessed servant of God, Father Salamis. I knew holy men in the Capuchins. But things had come to a pass that I could not stay. One of the other brothers said to me, we must do something. And I heard a voice say, we will do something. And I recognized the voice. It was my voice, but I didn't say it. I never made the decision to say it. But it was said, and I called the other brothers the next morning and I said, the ax is laid to the root of the trees. And since that time, we've grown from eight friars to 90 friars and 15 sisters. We're, we're, every year we have to take over a new building. Last year we spent $2 million on the poor. We're building a hospital for the poor in Latin America, which the original Capuchins did. That's what they did, they ran hospitals. Not what we mean by a hospital, but a shelter for the dying. Now our hospitals have surgeries and everything else. The works. Let me tell you, any day of the week, I'll take a good Protestant to a bad Catholic. You know, there are no good Protestants in hell, and there are no bad Catholics in heaven. I, I, I never discovered the Catholic faith. I grew up in a Catholic world. 
I grew up in a city, when you asked somebody where they lived, they told you their parish. I, I, I had little or no awareness until I was a teenager of Protestantism at all. And, and I had a dear friend who was a Presbyterian minister who is now very old and with Alzheimer's disease. I went to see him recently and his wife. And they are and were wonderful Christian people. I approach this differently from a convert because I see and believe with all my heart that this church is the historical reality that our blessed Savior sent into the world to bring his word. He never even told anybody to write anything down. It was the decision of the members of the early church to write it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is inerrant. But Jesus no place says to anybody, write it down. It's the way that we brought his word, copying the Jews who had their word of God. He left the sacraments, and Dr. Howell gave a very nice review of those. Several of the sacraments are so clear in the New Testament, I don't see how anybody can avoid them. The Eucharist, baptism, uh, the sacrament of reconciliation, the imposition of hands, less obvious marriage and the anointing. Well, the anointing of the sick is in James. But in the theology of St. Paul, marriage has to be blessed by Christ. And it is the work of the church to bring the sacraments to the world. But the church constantly needs reform. All the churches need reform. But the Catholics need it the most. Why? Because from those to whom much is given, much is expected. I said it was the worst of times and the best of times. We have lived through the pontificate of one of the greatest popes. We, we've been spoiled. That one of the secular magazines in New York said the last time the pope was there that he would probably be called John Paul the Great. There's only three popes that have that encomium. Leo the Great, who we celebrated the other day, Gregory the Great, and Nicholas the Great. And they're called that because they had profound effects on world history, secular history. I think that, like anybody else, the Holy Father had his strengths and his weaknesses. And I think he constantly called the church to the best possible expressions of faith in modern times that you could have. But I think he was too kind. He was too kind to those who really are disloyal to the church. And consequently, they were not led to conversion. Now, what needs to be done? St. Catherine of Genoa says, and all the great reformers say, that reform must start in the heart. I mentioned the Protestant holiness movement, which grew out of the preaching of John Wesley, who was a very high church Anglican. John Wesley, on a certain Easter, gave first communion to 2,000 people. Wesley's hymns on for the Eucharist could be sung at any Catholic Mass. The Christ sheds his blood mystically in the Eucharist. The American Methodists are so far from Wesley that he wouldn't even know what they were if he came back. And, um, but from that movement did grow a holiness movement in the 19th century, largely led by women like Phoebe Palmer, 
and they had the revival meetings and things like that. Tom, uh, uh, um, I give the history of that in this book, of that movement, and uh, of, of the incredible, uh, the incredible uh, influence that the writings of St. Catherine, her dialogue, had, which is in this book, the dialogue, on American Protestants. They published six editions of St. Catherine of Genoa's writings before the Catholics ever did. You won't find her name in their books because they call her Madame Adorno. They don't call her St. Catherine of Genoa. Thomas Upham, uh, very, very famous. John Morgan of Oberlin College. Phoebe Palmer, many of them use St. Catherine of Genoa. She was constantly quoted in the Methodist Quarterly. Would you believe? Do you ever see a Protestant church over the door that says, Holiness unto the Lord? The older people would remember. She was their saint. They didn't pray to her, but they read her stuff. And what did she call people to? Conversion. She's the first Catholic to ever speak directly of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. She uses those words. Now, brothers and sisters, you got to start with yourself. I am utterly, absolutely, completely disinterested in any movement in the Catholic Church that does not call people to conversion, personal conversion, every day. And as far as I'm concerned, every day it gets worse. Yesterday, I told the people at Mass, I saw Mel Gibson's film, The Passion. It was shattering, shattering. I'll never forget that. Uh, I, the images of it are burned into my mind. And that's what leads us to conversion. Our Savior says, his opening lines in the Gospel of Mark, the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. We are so far for conversion that when, when someone is caught in a sin, we're all scandalized, rather than encouraging them in their conversion. Scandal does nothing. Scandal does absolutely nothing. As far as I'm concerned, scandal is the work of the devil itself, himself. But they should be called to conversion, to change, to a holy life. The other great Catholic of the time is Mother Teresa. I was privileged to know Mother Teresa half my life. We never would have started our new community without Mother Teresa. She guided us, not that she told us to leave, but in so many ways. In fact, the day we started, I met her and I said, Mother Teresa, you better pray for me. I've got $800 and eight men. And she said, don't worry, God has lots of money. Uh, the missionaries of charity take care of 50,000 lepers in the world. Complete care. And that's just one segment of people. I think Mother Teresa is a prophetess. Catherine of Siena was a prophetess. Teresa of Avila was a prophetess. And perhaps in her own quiet, humble way, so was Therese of Lisieux. And I think Mother Teresa absolutely is the one who prophetically calls Catholics to a more evangelical life. In our community, we do not hesitate to call ourselves 
evangelical Catholics. Because our Holy Father, St. Francis, when he wrote the first rule, this was the rule. This is the rule and life of the Friars Minor, to observe the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, period. The Pope wanted more. He says, that's not enough. Now, not that it wasn't enough, but it wasn't enough words. Okay. And brothers and sisters, follow the gospel. Much of the faith has been undermined by an injudicious, utterly, absolutely unscientific, utterly unscientific, flabby, ephemeral approach to what is called the search for the historical Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I look at the church from the inside. I know a whole lot about it. It's greatness which comes from Christ. It's terrible weakness that comes from human beings like you and me. I know the times I've served the church, and I know the times I have failed. And I deeply regret that. Oh, you think I did a lot of good things for the church. I'll be so grateful to get into purgatory when I get out of this place. <laughs> By the way, purgatory is much better than you think. St. Catherine of Genoa says, the joy of the holy souls in purgatory is exceeded only by the joy of the saints in heaven. So forget all these crummy pictures of purgatory. And it's really part of heaven. Luther and Calvin denied purgatory because of predestination. It didn't make sense. People say, I don't believe in purgatory. What do you think you're in? Disney World? The, this is supposed to be purgatory here. And as Sam Johnson said, was an Episcopalian, the Catholics are right, because most of the people we know are certainly not ready to go to heaven, and we hope they're not going to hell, so there's got to be something else. Now, there are people here tonight who are not Roman Catholics. Let me apologize to you because we do not do well in representing the Church of Christ. Our only excuse is that the 12 apostles did not do well. They failed, and they failed miserably. And the more I read scripture, the more I realize how badly we failed. When St. Francis de Sales wrote his beautiful book, The Introduction to the Devout Life, the Protestants all read it. And they said if all the Catholics were like Francis de Sales, there would be no Protestants. Francis de Sales was Bishop of Geneva, a city he never saw, couldn't go there. I respect the beautiful faith, the devotion, of so many Protestants. And I respect their faith, but, and I respect their denomination, but it's a human thing. And sometimes, as in the holiness movement, and in the American Puritans, different times, they've done very, very well. In no way does that, in the slightest way, take away from my faith that Jesus Christ established this mysterious reality that by the time of St. Irenaeus was called the universal or Catholic Christian church. I'm sorry 
we do so poorly. And let us love Christ. Let us be grateful to him. Let us observe him as best we can in life. I'm immensely blessed to work with the poor. And Christ is always there. Always, always, always. If you want to touch the hand of Christ, go with the poor. I have a little girl in our homes, our good council homes right now, who is crucified. Her mother sold her in the street for drugs. She's so badly raised that she can neither hear nor speak. And in our good council homes, which I'm the president of, but Chris Bell runs the homes and started them, after a few weeks, this girl began to hear. She began to attend to the sound of human voices. And she had her baby, which she can't keep. She's too ill to keep the baby. She's not even really interested in the baby. The police brought her to, uh, her to us. But she began to speak. She can't even say words. But the day I baptized the baby, I said to her, Donna, isn't the baby beautiful? And she went, <coughs> that's the beginning of speech. If today you hear his voice, harden not your heart and open your eyes because Christ is all around us. And the more we see him, the more we will be changed and the world will change. And the broken body of Christ in all the different churches will begin to come together. It may never happen in this world. That's God's decision. But how beautiful it is to look beyond this world when indeed there will be one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Christ, one Savior. May Almighty God bless each of us in the name of the Father and of the Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. I hope you've enjoyed this special presentation by Father Benedict Grishel. Here's a challenge both to the church and to us about authentic renewal in Jesus Christ through his word, through prayer, and through our service. Let's ask that God's grace will indeed renew our lives. God bless you. See you next week.